Read verses 22 through 29. John 1, verses 22 through 29. Let us now give our attention to the reading of God's word. They said then to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May God bless this reading and our hearing of this portion of his holy word. The whole world waked up the other morning to the stunning news that Pope John Paul I, after only 34 days, as head of the Roman Catholic Church, had died in his sleep. The light was on and he had been reading Thomas Kempis' Imitation of Christ. Here are some of the words that he must have been reading. The aim of the true Christian should be to imitate in so far as it is possible the model given to him in the person and in the life of Christ. To achieve this aim means to discover the spiritual, the inner life, to turn completely away from that in the world which distracts our desires from him. Humility, contrition, self-discipline, and a willingness to submit to spiritual authority are all necessary if one is to achieve the goal of the imitation of Christ's life, of reconciliation with God, and of spiritual peace. No happiness will be found until men turn to God, since everyone, including king and pope, has trouble and anxiety. His lot is the happiest, who is able to suffer for the love of God. He couldn't have been reading finer words than these. For therein is what leads us to the question that takes us back. Where is the land? If we study our roots as far as this feast is concerned, and we ask the question, where is the land? We go all the way back to the place where God calls out a person why he chose Abraham is in his own sovereign knowledge, but God called Abraham. And God tested Abraham repeatedly. But then God brought him to the most crucial test of all of his life. After having told him 
that even as an old man of a hundred years and with a wife of over 90 years of age, that she should conceive and bear a son, so much so that they laughed at the promise of God, so much so that Isaac's name meant laughter. But God fulfilled his promise. And so there sprung from two who would have been as good as dead as far as succeeding generations were concerned, a brand new life through really a miraculous performance of God. And then one day, in what must have seemed the most horrid contradiction of that promise, God commanded Abraham to take Isaac and take him up to a place called Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. A burnt offering was a sacrifice made for sin. A lamb would be taken, and the imposition of hands would be laid upon it, and then that lamb would be the guilt bearer, and it would be offered, would be slain, and burned for sin. So Abraham took two of his servants, and he took his son Isaac, and they started up the mountain of Moriah. Perhaps if you watch the news that comes out of Jerusalem today, you see on television the Dome of the Rock. That huge mosque that, there, that is there is believed to have been built right on top of what was then Mount Moriah. Perhaps it was also Mount Calvary. But at any rate, God is working his purposes out as year succeeds to year and our little years are so insignificant in the great and total plan and design of God. But it has its roots that go back to those very things that were taking place when Isaac and Abraham were trudging up Mount Moriah. And when they had at last come to the place where the sacrifice was to be made and where the altar was, there, upon that altar, Isaac was bound with cords. And Isaac had asked his father. He had said, Father, the wood is here. The fire is here. The altar is here. But where is the lamb? And Abraham had said, the Lord will provide, my son. And yet Isaac was obedient implicitly to his father, and his father was obedient to God. The epistle to the Hebrews tells us in that marvelous 11th chapter that Abraham did not stagger in unbelief at the promise of God because he believed God was able to bring him even back from the dead. And so by faith he was determined to obey God. And so when he raised up the knife in the glint of the sun on that mountain top to slay, the dearest in all of life to him, 
the one out of whom God had promised all the nations of the earth should be blessed. Abraham heard a voice out of heaven with great authority calling his name twice, Abraham, Abraham. And he stopped. And the angel instructed him that he was not to stretch forth his hand against the lad. That at that moment, God had provided a ram whose horns had been caught in a thicket. And that would be the sacrifice that day. And then God told him, because you have been willing to give the dearest, you will be the one out of whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. What a tremendous thing. Because thou hast obeyed my voice. Then let's look forward, asking the question again, where is the lamb? There were two, probably John, the beloved apostle and the writer of the Gospel of John, walking with Andrew, a fellow fisherman, both of whom had been attracted to the teaching and the preaching of John the Baptist, that one who had announced that God's Messiah was coming, that fiery preacher from the desert country who had seen people's lives transformed and changed. And one day he had come to him, Jesus himself, and John knew that this was the Messiah. For he had seen the Holy Spirit descending upon him as a dove. And John knew that this voice from heaven which spoke of this one, who was now to begin his short ministry of less than three years. And so when John points him out, John the Baptist points him out to John the Apostle and Andrew the Apostle. He says of him, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Do you get the connection? Isaac said, Where is the Lamb, Father? And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. In the years that it intervened, through Isaac's descendants, God had gathered himself a people, and they had been taken into hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. And then through God's hands again, they are delivered from a cruel Pharaoh who plague after plague against them had not dented his cruelty until finally one night God said the angel of death will come. And he will pass over every household. And only those households where blood is sprinkled on the doorpost and the lintel over the door because you do not trample the blood on the foot. The angel of death will pass over those, but a paschal lamb will be kept up and will be sacrificed that night. And that will be the Passover 
and you will keep this feast from generations. So, a lamb saved Isaac. A lamb saves a family in Egypt. And then that whole nation moves out, and in obedience to that commandment, they keep on sacrificing lambs at the time of the Passover and the Atonement. Until at last, that one whom John the Baptist points out as the Lamb of God has come. And he tells his disciples one night in an upper room that with desire he is desired to eat the feast with them. And he makes himself the Lamb. He makes himself the Lamb that night and tells them plainly. Some believe that John, because he was the youngest of the apostles, was the one who asked the traditional question that the younger son at the Passover feast would ask, what do you mean by this service? Then the recounting of what had taken place in the Exodus and the angel of death passing over. And then Jesus takes up the bread and the emphasis is on the verb to break, broken. This is my body broken for you. In the Church of Scotland, they always have a big piece of bread and the minister tears it apart. And it represents the tearing apart of the Son of God, broken upon a cross, broken for you and broken for me that we might be forgiven. This is the blood, said Jesus, of the new covenant this blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins, drink all ye of it. So then why these somber words that come to warn us? They come to warn us, as we're read in our hearing a while ago from our book of church order, because Paul, in correcting abuses in worship in the church at Corinth, saw that there were people who did not understand what they were doing when they came to the Lord's Supper. You notice I said it's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's table. I didn't say it's the Savior's table. If he is your Savior, he should be your Lord. But when you partake of the elements in a right manner, when you pick up the little piece of bread, you're identifying yourself with Jesus. You're making a public confession of your faith. And you're saying to your brothers and sisters in the church, I have confessed my sins, and as near as I know my own heart, I am seeking to live under the lordship of Jesus. And so I can take his feet. Now what does that mean? That means that if you came here this morning planning a sin this afternoon, you don't take the feast if you intend to go through with the sin. If you were figuring last night how you'll come to communion today and enjoy worship and steal something this afternoon, forget it. You'll eat and drink judgment to your own soul. If there is some salacious piece of slanderous gossip that you wanted to pass on to your friend this morning and you called them on the telephone and the line was busy and so you've come out to church in communion. 
But this afternoon, you'll call them and tell them, forget it. Don't take it. You eat and drink judgment to your own heart. Now that means that planned sin is out of it. But if you're brokenhearted for your sin, if you have sinned against him and you know it, then you can confess your sins unto him with the assurance of 1 John 1, 9. You can confess your sins knowing that he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it's important for us to remember that that verse says that if we walk in the light, so if the light has come, and I've searched my heart, and I know that the things that he died to take away, I cannot willfully continue in, then I've seen it in the right way. And so I may take the Lord's Supper. I take it. I take it because it's for sinners when I've forsaken my sin. And my intention is to follow the Lord in a life of true penance. Repentance from it. That's what Martin Luther nailed on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg in 1517 when he declared the great Protestant Reformation. He said all of the Christian life should be a life in which we repent from our sins. does not mean that we're perfect, but it does mean that today the Lord takes a fresh hold upon you, and you take a fresh hold upon the Lord because you know your need of it. The choir sang a moment ago, this general assembly sang, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. And that's where we need to go when we recognize our sin. The man who wrote that was named Charles Wesley. He was converted back in 1738 in the month of May, on May the 21st. He was sick. He was sitting out on a porch watching a, a sparrow that was being pursued by a hawk. And the frightened little bird couldn't get away from the sparrow hawk. And then finally the bird made a direct flight right to Charles Wesley and went into the folds of his great coat and his blanket that was over him. And he looked at the quivering little bird. And then he thought about Jesus. He thought about his own need of him. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. That means I come to him when I'm worried about my sin problem. I come to him when I'm worried about my guilt problem that no psychiatrist can analyze away. That I come to him when I'm worried about death and the world to come. Knowing that he has made provisions for me. He said to his disciples that he wouldn't drink this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's when final victory will come. That's when it comes for us. You know, as you take it, you see the Lamb not only for an individual, not only for a family and a nation, in a world, 
But look at this from the book of Revelation. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break the seal. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. A lamb standing as if slain. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the four elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain, and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Here you have a lamb whose sacrifice is for the whole universe. That's how great this feast is. The young woman who wrote this hymn thought that because she was sick, she could never really do anything for the Lord. Her brother was a wonderful minister, and he said at her funeral that Charlotte always thought that her life had been so little used by God. And he said if she had never done anything but have written this one hymn, it would have been worth it all. One day, a man visited in her home where they had kind of home Bible classes like so many people have now. He was from Switzerland, and his name was Caesar Milan. He led a man named Alfred Edersheim, who wrote two great books that you'll study if you study the New Testament, called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Edersheim led John Duncan, the famous Edinburgh preacher and teacher, to the Lord. Well, Caesar Milan also led this person, Charlotte Elliott. He had spoken to her and asked her about how it stood between Charlotte and the Lord. And she was infuriated because she thought that religion was a very personal matter and that he was rude to have inquired, and she told him so. He, trying to speak English as well as he could, apologized to her for what he had said, said he meant her no harm, that he was simply trying to speak to her about the needs of her soul. A few days later, because he stayed in their house for some weeks, she came to him weeping. And she said to him, I want to apologize because I was rude to you. She said, the truth of the matter is, I don't know whether I am a Christian or not. 
She had been baptized in the Anglican Church. She attended worship, but she said, I just don't know. How can I come to Christ? And Caesar Milan smiled and he said, My dear, there is only one way that any of us can come. And that's just as we are. And she said to him, You mean just as I am? He said, That's right. Get that in her mind, just as I am. Just as I am. And so sometime later, when she was feeling that she was not a person of value or worth to God or to anyone else, she wanted Christ to give her this dignity and to give her salvation, and she wrote out these words, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. What could be more beautiful than coming to a lamb? O Lamb of God, I come. And then look at verse 4, which we'll sing, Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. And then the last stanza, Just as I am, thy love unknown, has broken every barrier down, now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. Once in the Lake District of England, I walked outside William Wordsworth's house and saw where Dorothy, his daughter whom he had loved so much, was buried. And there, at the little stone marker, was a lamb on top of it. And beneath the words Dorothy Wordsworth were the words, O Lamb of God, I come. She had been reciting this hymn just before she died. It's the hymn by which many of us have come to faith in Christ. And it's a perfect hymn for coming to communion because all the benefits of what the Lamb is doing are for you here.